Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. So like I said, today we're talking about climate um, and how archaeologists deal with it, how we look at it, um, and how it interacts with human beings. So uh, when I started teaching this class, I would always ask the question, what's the difference between climate and weather? And I wouldn't get many answers. Let's see if that's changed. What's the difference between climate and weather? Yeah. Yes. Correct. Yes. Uh, climate is the long-term average, and that can be over a week, a month, a year. You know, you usually define that, and then weather is what is happening right now. Yes. Absolutely. Um, and so we human beings, we live in the world. We. It's easy to understand psychologically why weather is much more memorable, right? Uh, so, you know, last January, if we had a terrible snowstorm, you might remember, oh, we had a terrible snowstorm last January, and you're going to forget that the other three weeks of the month were above average temperatures because that's kind of, you know, just barely above average isn't really uh, as noticeable to you as the extremes and the storms and things like that. Um, weather affects you on the day-to-day, -day, so it, it's a lot, and I don't have, on the one hand, I don't really have sympathy for people who say like, oh, it's snowing today, so global warming doesn't exist, because that's clearly confusing weather and climate. But then on the other hand, like, I understand from a human being point of view, like, where you, if you never think about it critically, I can understand, and I don't blame anyone personally, but if you're setting policy, you need to be educated about these things. So anyway, weather. That's happening right now. That lightning strike climate is many, many storms or many, many days of weather. Okay. So a lot of times we hear about, and I'm not just talking about in archaeology or just in social, um, earth sciences, but planetary cycles are kind of important for us to understand. Um, and so I'm going to briefly go through, because a lot of times you hear, oh, well, there are natural cycles that cause climate change, and absolutely 100% there are natural cycles that affect the climate. That's true. And human beings live in the climate. And as archaeologists, we need to know what was the climate like when people were living in the past. So understanding planetary cycles, which operate on really large timescales, is really important. Oh, good uh, quote from NASA. Quote, climate is what you expect, like a hot summer, and weather is what you get, like a hot day with a pop-up thunderstorm. Another way to think about it. Okay. So we all know, you know, starting in elementary school, that we have seasons because the Earth's axis is tilted, and in the summer, the northern hemisphere gets more sun, um, and in the winter, we get less sun. We all know that that it's fairly straightforward. Without that, we would have a very different um, weather pattern or climate pattern um, on the Earth. So right now, it's tilted to 22.3.5 uh, degrees. So it's actually right between um, the extremes of the planetary um, axis wobble. 
So it, the axis isn't always pointing at the same, same degree. And we're right actually in the middle of this. So when we have less of a tilt, there's less seasonal variation. When there's more of a tilt, there's more seasonal variation. And since we're in the middle, this 4100 year cycle, that is the amount of time it takes from the Earth's axial cycle to go from 24.5 to 22.2, and then back to 24.5, that takes 4,000, oh, sorry, uh, 41,000 years. The variation increases, um, uh, seasonal variation increases when we have a, a deeper tilt. And right now we're right in the middle, and actually we're heading to less, to less variation. So one natural cycle is actually giving us less climatological variation, which is the opposite of what we're actually seeing right now in net, in total. We're seeing more climatological variation. So that's one cycle. Um, <laughs> I should also note that our Earth doesn't have a perfectly circular orbit. Many of us are already aware that we have an elliptical orbit, but you might not be aware that that is not a symmetrical elliptical orbit. In the northern hemisphere's winter, so right now, actually January 4th or January 5th, um, we are as close as we get to the sun. We're only 95 million miles away, only, right? And then on July 4th, we're 98 million miles away. So because the northern hemisphere's summer is a little farther from the, from the sun than the southern hemisphere's summer, they're a little closer to the sun, they actually have a hotter summer for that reason, or that's one of the reasons, but that contributes to it. And you can see that in that, uh, in Australia, they've had to add a new color to the heat maps because it got past, you know, 50 uh, centigrade. So that's not good. So this is from 2013. It's summer in Australia right now. Here's a recent heat wave graph. So that's pretty freaking hot. Um, <laughs> that's not good. Uh, when I did my dissertation, I worked in uh, Mexico and it was pretty hot and we would be working outside all day and about one o'clock we'd get, um, call it a fry pan brain, like your brain's been on a fry pan all day and you start making really stupid mistakes with, you know, we're measuring things and we'd start saying like wrong units, be like, oh yeah, I'm five centimeters away from you, which doesn't, you know, we'd make really dumb mistakes because we'd been out, not necessarily in that hot of temperature, but I remember one day I came back and I put my thermometer outside and it broke at 125 degrees. <laughs> Glad to be done with that. I'm not a hot weather person. Okay, so what are we looking at here? Uh, we're looking at uh, a very crude model of our solar system, not to scale, of course, with the sun in the middle and the Earth with an exaggerated uh, non-symmetrical orbit. So here is the uh, July 4th uh, maximum distance away, and here's the uh, January 3rd uh, closest distance. So. This is on a cycle as well. Uh, this dark, long uh, dash line here shows that this elliptical eccentricity, it gets wider and um, it gets more circular and it gets more elliptical uh, through time. And we're actually right in the middle of circularity versus uh, being really wide. And again, this is, um, this oscillates on a 100,000 year cycle. This, oh, and by the way, this eccentricity is caused by other planets. So these things are 
pretty constant, right? So as archaeologists, we can go back in time and say, oh, this was at a time of less elliptical orbit, or the axial tilt was less, so we can expect a little less climatological variability. All right, so we're a little closer to the circular end of things right now. So the more circular we are, the less variability we get. The more elliptical it is, the more variable variability we get. And since we're closer to the circular end and actually heading towards the circular uh, version, that means we have less climatological variability. Again, this is one of those natural cycles, and right now it's saying we're getting less climatological variability. Um, on top of that craziness, so we have the tilt of the axle, uh, axis. We have the uh, circularity or the ellipsis um, shape of the actual orbit. Then that whole orbit that's kind of egg-shaped, not quite oval-shaped, rotates. As it's getting more circular or more elliptical, it <laughs> orbits around as well. And so we have elliptical precession. And what this basically does is that almost every 2,000 years, every 1,900 and change years, the hottest month of the year moves. So during Roman times in the northern hemisphere, July was the hottest month. In the French Revolution, they renamed it Thermidor, right, because it was hot. Now August is the hottest month. That's because this precession keeps moving around, even though the axial tilt stays the same. So in uh, 5,000 years, uh, the hottest, uh, the, all of the equinoxes and solstices will have shifted one quarter as well. So in uh, 5,700 years, the, uh, the, what is it, not the equinox, the, yeah, the equinox in March will be uh, four, uh, three months later, right? So these, all of these things are changing. You don't need to memorize them. I'm not going to ask you how, what is the elliptical precession uh, length of cycle. I'm not going to ask you that. But what I need you to understand is that as these things are fairly constant, we can use them to help us reconstruct the past and the climate that people were dealing with. So 10,000 years ago, the seasons were completely flipped. And so that obviously would change how people lived and the timing that they did different things. 10,000 years ago was when agriculture started. So their agricultural season probably would have been in a completely different time uh, or season. Okay. So uh, a couple other uh, cycles that I just want to really briefly talk about. Uh, one is, well, to talk about this, I need to talk first about, yeah, uh, insulation. Insulation, I-N-S-O-L. Insulation just means absorb solar radiation. So it's how much um, solar radiation the Earth is absorbing. Insulation varies day-to-day uh, -day, uh, by weather variables as well as more long-lasting variables. So uh, cloud cover can bounce off up to 30% of the sun's energy, but they can also trap them uh, below, below the clouds once they get there. The uh, snow and ice of the Arctic can reflect 70 to 90%. That number, that reflection number, is called albedo. And the higher your albedo, the more energy you can reflect. Right? This helps keep the Arctic cold even when it gets sunny. Um, the atmosphere itself can reflect radiation back in. Right? This is part of the greenhouse effect. 
Um, we get some general surface reflection, but there's a, a lot of different variables. The sun just doesn't you know, give us uh, 300 and change uh, watts every square meter all day. That it's, it's, it's variable. So why does that matter? Um, these cycles that we talked about, um, the 2300, the 4100, the 100,000 uh, year cycles, they're all interacting at the same time we get random solar variability. The sun is, the sun dwarfs the changes that we see in the planetary cycles. The sun, um, so in the last, let's see here, in the last hundred years, planetary cycles have contributed between zero and 0 0.04 degrees Celsius of change to our uh, global average temperature, and those are changes down. Variables within the sun that are fairly unpredictable, like uh, how basically how strong the sun is burning, um, and other solar storms and all kinds of things that I don't I don't personally know as much about. Um, that is accounted for about two degrees Celsius rise in temperature. So that one is by far more unpredictable and uh, and a stronger factor usually. And I've seen mathematical models that say that you know this might be dropping because we've had a really active period. It's going to go into a more dormant period, and temperatures might actually fall, which would be useful for us right now, because although we've seen a small drop from planetary cycles, we've seen a small rise from solar cycles, we've seen a, a total change of 0.6 degrees Celsius in the last 100 years. Most of that has come since the 80s. It's really stepped up a lot since the 80s. So we're missing, you know, we can basically just throw out the planetary model, uh, the planetary cycles, because they don't have enough reaction on this short of a time scale, on the 100 year time scale. Um, so we're missing 0 0.4 degrees Celsius, and that actually um, fits in really well with the models that people have for how carbon dioxide and other uh, greenhouse gases affect the atmosphere. So this is outside of our control, the sun, but the carbon dioxide is not. So now the question is, how much farther is it going to go? And obviously, the sun creates a variable on that. So even if we knew, let's say we set a budget, and we're going to say, OK, we're going to let this much carbon go out, and it's going to affect the temperature like this, the sun is going to be a variable. And the farther out we get, the less sure we are of the variability of the sun. So it could help us, or it could hurt us, depending on how hot you like the planet to be. Now, the neat thing about this is, um, well, one of the things that I find neat about it is it changes how we, um, or it changes the day-to-day the -day weather around the planet and also uh, the more predictable ideas about the climate or the more predictable um, climate information. So one of the things it does, let's talk about atmospheric moisture uh, and uh, conveyor belt. So in the tropics, it's warmer. Don't, I don't need to tell you that. Um, and warm air holds more moisture. And warm air also rises. So around the equator, we have hot, moist air rising up, and it spreads out. And as it warms up and spreads out, it comes to cooler regions. 
And as it drops in temperature, it can't hold as much water, so it dumps a lot of its precipitation in this central band around the equator. And I'll show you how that actually changes based because landforms get in the way. Um, but a lot of its moisture gets dropped out here. And as it um, gets to these more moderate latitudes, it's very dry air. And it warms up as it's, uh, it's dry. And as it passes over these areas, it sucks all the moisture out of the atmosphere, rises up, and precipitates out again. So it's this up and down, up and down uh, heat and moisture retention, and then cooling and dropping, and then picking up more moisture and dropping it again. And wouldn't you know it, where is it? Let me jump ahead. So this is that moisture belt where it's picking up lots of hot, moist air and dropping out the, so out the sand, excuse sand, uh, out the moisture. Um, a lot of it then gets picked up again. It, when it picks up the, uh, like it's responsible for the monsoons here in, um, in Southeast Asia or Southwest Asia. And then parts of the Sahara, uh, it actually goes a little below the Sahara, and then it picks up all the moisture out of the Sahara. It actually contributes a lot of uh, drying to the Sahara, and then that rain gets contributed farther north as it drops again. Um, okay. That's all I wanted to say about that. Boop, boop, boop. Uh, I should also note that land and oceans have different um, thermal inertias, so land absorbs uh, heat. A lot, um, it's, it fluctuates a lot more in its temperature. During the day, it gets a lot warmer. During the night, it gets a lot colder. While the oceans are much more stable, they have more thermal inertia. And therefore, um, on top of the global uh, just solar radiation that causes a band around the center to be hotter or colder uh, and pick up that moisture, uh, the large land masses can get in the way. And that's what, uh, I should have this slide next for some reason. And that's what sh makes this all shift instead of being a straight band around the center or around um, wherever the sun's shining over at that time. Um, so this is actually the result. This wiggliness is a result of these land masses interacting with the moist, warm ocean air. Fun times. Okay. And this will become important uh, in tomorrow's class when I talk about um, ocean cores and ice cores and the uh, oxygen reconstruction um, that we do to see uh, how much uh, how hot things were in the past and how I'm I'm kind of giving you the this is the what we know is going on and then uh, next class I'm going to show you how we know that a similar thing is happening in the ocean um, where again warm water rises to the surface, cold water sinks. And so you have, in the tropics, you have this warm water rising. And in the arc near the poles, you have this cold water sinking. And as it goes like this, it kind of like has a pumping action. And it pushes the surface water towards the poles. And it pushes the lower water towards, <coughs> excuse me, the upwelling at the, um, at the, near the equator. So here we have, for example, near South America, off the coast of Peru, we have an upwelling place where these cold currents come up to the top. And the neat thing is, if you think about, you know, a lot of the life in the ocean lives in the top 100 meters. And they're eating, and they're chewing stuff up, and they're pooping, and they're doing all kinds of their biological activity. Well, all that kind of floats down into the deep 
uh, ocean. Well, at these upwelling points, a lot of nutrients are pulled with this water coming up from the deep, and that's why this uh, fishing area off of Peru is so rich. There's tons of nutrients, which get eaten by lots of plankton and other small animals, which get eaten by larger and larger animals until we get to fish and then humans, um, or sometimes humans and then fish, depending on what fish is uh, being eaten or eating you. Uh, so anyway, this hot water then flows out. Um, and for example, the hot tropical Gulf Stream flows up towards the North Pole and dumps a lot of that heat into the atmosphere as it cools down and sinks by uh, Greenland and Iceland. And then it flows back down underneath. And there are gyres, these round places that are kind of like giant whirlpools. Um, but there's a whole circulatory system and or conveyor belt that moves the ocean around. Um, again, driven by different rates of insulation and then running into you know, those pesky continents and all. This is obviously important when we're talking about ancient humans because this has been a rich, off of coast Peru, has been a rich fishing area for as long as people have been there. Um, this is why Europe is so much warmer than we would otherwise expect. I mean, if you go straight across latitude, you know, we're like here in southern Europe. And even when I lived in, you know, northern Germany, it was plenty, it was just as warm as here. Uh, that's because of that Gulf jet stream, or the Gulf Stream. Okay, where are we going next? Ice. Um, might not think much about ice, but ice has a really important um, role to play in regulating uh, temperatures. Ice has a retarding factor. It slows down massive swings in heat. Uh, for example, um, even though you know on a bright clear day in the Arctic, you're getting uh, some solar radiation. 70 to 90% of that is being bounced off of um, ice. And so if you have a regular amount of ice, you're going to bounce off the regular amount. However, as soon as that ice disappears, and usually where you have ice, you have open water, it's absorbing that heat a lot uh, more strongly. And therefore, the highs in the summer in the Arctic get longer and higher. And we can see an illustration of this. This is where I found that. Let's see, I actually have it pulled up already. This is, um, it'll be, spoke, it'll be. 20 to 30 years ago, the sea ice covering the Arctic Ocean was dominated by ice that was many years old. The white, the dark. This core of old ice survived all year round. Around this core, a smaller fringe of seasonal ice froze each winter and thawed each summer. Old ice eventually drifted out of the Arctic through the Fram Strait. New batches of old ice were built in the Beaufort Gyre. The gyre was a nursery where young ice grew thicker and stronger as it drifted around for many years. Today, summers in the southern branch of the Beaufort Gyre are often too warm for ice to survive. As a result, the amount of thick old ice in the Arctic has declined significantly. In its place, Wait for it. thin ice is likely to melt in the summer. Small amount of old thick ice uh -oh. makes the Arctic vulnerable to extreme ice retreat in very warm summers. It's a situation that keeps Arctic wildlife and the people who live there poised on the edge of dramatic and possibly irreversible change. Yeah. So 
And it's not only bad for the animals that survive or depend on that having you know, permanent ice to uh, live on. It's also one of the variables that sometimes people say, oh, well, the scientists don't know exactly how warm it's going to get. Well, this is kind of one of the reasons. Not just this, but this is an illustration. We don't know. Something like this is not easily modelable. And it also doesn't, it's hard to tell how much energy the ocean is going to absorb um, because there's less ice on it. We, there's so many interlocking variables. Getting a range is about the best we can physically do at this time. But it's because of these natural phenomena that we can't predict as well. And who knows, we could uh, end up with a, another snowball earth. If you've never heard of snowball earth, have fun looking that up on Wikipedia. But basically, there's a runaway albedo effect, which is kind of the opposite of what's happening here, where we're getting less ice and snow. And so it's absorbing more radiation, so it gets hot faster. An albedo effect, or a, excuse me, a, a snowball earth is the opposite, when we get so much snow and ice that 70 to 90% of the solar radiation is being bounced off. So when we had lots of glaciers that came down past here, of course, um, a lot more radiation was getting bounced off, so it didn't get as warm on the Earth because a lot more solar radiation was being bounced off. And if that continued, and it got colder and colder and colder until you got ice down to the equators, you'd be bouncing off so much radiation that you couldn't get the Earth warmed back up to the temperatures that we're used to. Snowball Earth, fun times. The nice thing is it's all geological time scale, and geological time scale is much slower than we can deal with. And just for funsies, um, I thought I'd throw in the carbon cycle because a lot of times you hear about the carbon cycle. Um, and we use it when we're uh, looking at carbon dating, because remember, every uh, one of every million million uh, carbon atoms is a carbon-14 friend of ours. And so uh, we can see this large respiratory system that carbon creates where, um, say, carbon from the atmosphere goes into plants and is absorbed and made into leaves and sugar and all kinds of other things. Uh, they also put out um, lots of carbon when they decompose. That frees up the carbon. Sometimes that carbon gets um, built into the soil, and sometimes it gets metamorphosed into sediments and rocks. The upper ocean, the top 100 meters, has a really uh, vibrant uh, recycling of uh, carbon. And some of that, like I said before, drops down into the deep ocean as part of that nutrient stream I was talking about. And then it comes back up. So these are all nicely connected. Um, it's a nice circulatory system of carbon um, that we plug into when we're doing carbon dating. I just thought I'd throw that in there because it's a good uh, place to do that. OK. So getting back to this and talking about humans, um, I, I have here highlighted culture areas. So like the ancient Egyptians, the Maya, um, Mesopotamians, Indus, China, uh, Rome is just up here, uh, Aztecs, Incas. They're just outside of this intertropical convergence zone. But more specifically, they're often downstream of it. So this is a very predictable source of seasonal, um, seasonal precipitation. This helps people um, when they're working on, when they're building up large societies that depend on agriculture. You have um, thousands of people in a city. You need reliable agriculture um, and being 
downstream of a dependable rain source is much better than living somewhere that has, uh, you know, like unpredictable, like our rain system up here is a lot less predictable because, yeah, in the summer we get rain some days and some days we don't. Here it's like you get rain in a season and then it's running for the next season. So it's really easy to know when to plant. So that's one of the big ones. Uh, also, temperature. Um, now, this is how many freeze days, right? So we're up above the 75 or more freeze days a year. This is the 5 to 75. And then there are plenty of places that get almost no freezes. Certainly, um, if you have a society that's dependent on agriculture, it helps to be in an uh, area that has more predictable and less freeze days. You get more growing season. Um, so it's not, again, we're not environmental determinists. I'm not saying that the only places that advanced civilizations, as we might call them, uh, would occur are in these locations, but they might have a leg up because they're living in a frost-free, uh, predictable precipitation area. Right? So these are all uh, things we need to think about when we're talking about our societies later on. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Like License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.